Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. For our next live show, Ben Blacker and I are proud to be a part of the incredible lineup at San Francisco Sketchfest. We'll be there Sunday, January 20th at 4 o'clock. Go to sfsketchfest.com for tickets. That's sfsketchfest.com. Really so much amazing stuff at this festival. So come to see us and you'll find all kinds of other things that you want to see as well. Uh, We'll be reading two great pilots. I don't know what they are yet, but they'll be great. Uh, When last we spoke, I was still trying to get a story approved for the pilot I'm writing. I should say co-writing, because I'm writing it with a team of uh, three stand-ups. It took us three tries, uh, three different stories, but we did finally land on one that the production company and the studio and the network are all on board with. We've been given the go-ahead to actually finally write the script. Uh, I was talking to a writer friend uh, who was asking about how I handle notes and if I ever tell the network, look, sorry, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to do this, uh, even if they don't like it. And the answer is no, I never do that. And the real main reason is my own mental state when writing. I mean, it's hard enough just writing anything, period. But writing something with the constant thought in your head, I know they don't like this, but I have to prove them wrong, is just too hard. I mean, I'm sure there are writers who thrive on that kind of energy, but it's just not a good place for me, for my process. I mean, I'm going to second guess myself enough with that, without that kind of added pressure. Uh, Like I said, I'm co-writing this pilot uh, with with these three stand-ups who don't have a ton of experience in television writing. Uh, so I did some pontificating to them about things they should keep in mind as they're writing drafts of their scenes. And any advice I feel like I ever give to another writer, whether it's on staff or whatever it is, is really just as much directed to myself because I just so often forget these basic things when I'm writing. And I sit there wondering, why does this scene suck? Why, what is wrong with this? And it's usually because I forgot to ask myself some basic questions before starting to write the scene. So here are three of those questions in no particular order. One, what are the character's attitudes? If any character is in a scene and doesn't have a strong attitude about whatever it is that's going on, they're going to be dead weight and they're not going to be providing any comedy in the scene. So it's really crucial even if it seems like the, the, the character wouldn't inherently have an attitude, that, you have to find those attitudes and you have to find contrasting attitudes for the characters in the scene. Number two, where is the scene taking place? And it's not enough to say just, oh, you know, it's in a restaurant. It, it, you really have to visualize where the scene is. And I'm amazed how many times I'm able to get many drafts into a scene before I realize I'm not really picturing a setting. I'm not picturing anything. I'm just, my characters are just kind of talking to each other in this void, in this vague, neutral space. But if you can really take the time to fully imagine the physical location that they're in, that location often helps you out a lot. You discover something there, a prop, something, someone else uh, in the scene, something that helps that's beyond just the dialogue that makes that scene come to life. 
and often makes it a lot funnier. Uh, and number three, this one should be the most obvious, but it can get forgotten. What is the story purpose of the scene? Why are you even writing it? And if the answer is just that you're attached to some bit of comedy in the scene, that's not going to be enough. Like it, the scene has to justify its existence in the story. I know it seems obvious, but I'm constantly forgetting to abide by all of those rules and, and many others. And I'm sure I'll continue to forget to do that as long as I write. Uh, our dead pilot this time is The Prince by Mehar Sethi. Mehar has written on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Bojack Horseman, Robot Chicken, The Mick, uh, among many others. We had a huge cast for this script, probably our biggest ever. I'm going to send you to the episode notes uh, for the whole the whole list, but just say that uh, it was headed by our lead, uh, Glenn Howerton, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, you'll hear in my interview with Mayhar that follows the read that he really wrote it with Glenn in mind, so it was pretty cool for him that we had Glenn there to read it. So here is first my live interview with Mayhar from the stage at Dynasty Typewriter, followed by the live read of The Prince, and stay tuned after the read for a conversation I had with Mehar about how he got started as a writer, about what the role of writer's assistants is, um, and how to go from being a writer's assistant to a writer, uh, about where he wanted to take this show in series. He had some really cool ideas for that. So please stay tuned after the read for that. So here you go. Here's The Prince after a brief message. Hi, I'm the JV Club Podcast, Janet Varney, and I used to suffer from indecision. I couldn't choose between Star Wars and Star Trek, whether to call or text, or the best way to cook my eggs. But now, thanks to my weekly dose of We Got This on Maximum Fun, my decisions are made for me. Thanks, Mark and Hal. Warning, We Got This may cause shouting, phone throwing, the illusion that the hosts can hear you, laughter on public transit, and death. We Got This with Mark and Hal. We know what's best. Hi. Hi. So, tell us, let's start with, can you give me a log, give, tell these people just quickly what, this, what The Prince is about? A log line of the, sh of the show that we're going to do? Oh. Yeah. Um, it's like, I guess, the, sort of the premise is, uh, what if Karl Rove worked for Greenpeace? <laughs> and you sold this to HBO. Sold it to HBO, yeah. So what, I don't know, if I, this may be the first HBO Dead pilot we've done. Tell us a little bit about how that whole experience was. Um, good, I guess. Uh, they're, they're very accepting of sort of weird, cool, or I guess I would describe mine as weird, um, shows. They didn't put it on the air. It would be better if they put it on the air. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a sort of not that different than your normal process at, a, at another network, I suppose. Notes, and then addressing the notes. And so... This, it's very Texas. Is this, is this at all your background? or uh, I'm from Bakersfield. It's a town, uh, it's an oil town a few hours north of here. Um, but I thought that might be a little too specific for America, so I, I said it in Texas. But it's sort of about the same sort of circle of people that I grew up with. Um, like all my friends' dads work at Occidental or Chevron. And it's a lot about, uh, it's about good old boys who uh, have a lot of money and uh, shoot guns. Right. And was it a little bit... Cause, getting your true feelings about those people out? The, well, your, your main character is definitely 
the main taking revenge on yeah. This. Well, I wrote myself in as the forty-year-old woman who comes in later in the script, and that's more me, and that's how I usually work. But um, uh, but the the show is it, it's it's about like I feel like there's a lot of stories about brothers who love each other, but I think there's a lot of brothers who hate each other, and that's more what it's about. I love my brother, but I you know imagine if I hated him. <laughs> And HBO is sort of notorious for buying a lot of things and taking a long time to decide. I've and, learned that. Yeah. So, so was this? Did you? How did? What happened at the end of the process? They were actually pretty good about it. There was sort of a, um, an impetus to um, shit or get off the pot, and um, they decided. I don't know which one means canceling your show, but <laughs> but they did that one. Yeah. All right, well, you've helped us put together an amazing cast, yeah, which yeah. Are, which, and we're ready for them. Great. All right, thanks, thanks. Mayhart. <laughs> this is The Prince, written by Mayhart Sethi. Over black, discordant music rises, iridescent colors shimmer like an oil slick, barely forming the shape of Texas before we cut to an establishing shot of Austin at night. The state capitol glows in the distance. Dave Whitney, smug and in a suit, smokes as he walks through a mob of University of Texas Orange. He flicks his cig into a Tesla's open window. He's on the phone with his assistant, Ray Tron, a hipster who loves Ayn Rand. We intercut with Dave's sparse, rarely occupied office at Whitney Oil. Yeah, what's the, what's the son's name? Lawrence. Larry? Yeah, sounds like an idiot. And we're in a steam room moments later. State Senator Hahn sweats it out. Through the steam, Dave emerges. Still in his suit, he looks like the devil. Oh, Jesus! Is that Dave Whitney? How the shit you know I come here? At Whitney Oil, we try to know everything about our friends. Dave sets an expensive bottle of wine next to Han and sits down. I already told you boys I don't play. I'm voting to regulate. Tired of hearing my neighbors say their water tastes like fucking gasoline. Senator Han, my family helped build Texas. You know what Texas would be without oil? Arkansas. <laughs> think about all the families we employ. Think about your own family. That's right. That's an opportunity. Larry's a senior, right? And he wants to go to Vassar? I got friends at Vassar. <laughs> you? You got friends at Vassar? I got friends everywhere, huh? You help, uh, if you vote to help me, I'll help you. But if you vote to regulate, Larry won't get in, into any of the Seven Sisters. To a kid like him, that is a fate worse than mm, death. God damn it, Whitney. Hey, doo -doo 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 -doo, cheer up. Your son's going to be a Vassar man. That's every father's dream. <laughs> so go crack some wine. There's a case of it at your front door. Look, you know where I live? Dave gives him a look like, come on, man. We cut to an establishing shot of a working-class Tejano town. Chiron identifies it as Ennis. Past a faded Whataburger and a few lowriders, we see a hot, flat horizon. We're in a city conference room. Dave stands before five underpaid city officials. Mr. Whitney, why should we approve new wells when your existing ones are leaking into our aquifers? For a hundred years, safety has been my family's top priority, and we promise it'll continue to be. Whitney Oil has a record of code violations in Ennis. Gentlemen, our kids drink this water. A second city official speaks up. I, I, I think I speak for the entire city when I say we welcome the drilling expansion. We need the business. Nice watch, Greg. We notice that the second city official is wearing an out-of-place Rolex. Thanks. Everyone in favor of Whitney Oil, say aye. 
Out of five hands, four go up, their wrists covered in expensive watches. We cut to an establishing shot of Houston, massive red and white freeways snake into a landscape still devastated from the floods. We're interior of a hospital hallway, a sparse hospital hallway at 3 a.m. Carl Fisher, a 60-year-old man, is handcuffed to a chair, panicking. Dave appears. Dave, it wasn't my fault. Are you going to tell your brother? You think he wants to know when his employees get re arrested? That's what I'm for. You, you refused the breathalyzer, right? Yeah, but they took my blood. It's full of ketamine. Ke <laughs> ketamine? Yeah. Damn, you're hip. Right. <laughs> Shit. Right. Dave reveals a bag of blood. Don't sweat it, man. I got this blood off a of Mormon. Why do Mormons sell you his blood? <laughs> yeah, I'll, t I'll tell you that story sometime over a bowl of ketamine. Or a vial? How do you do ketamine? Well, first, you, it's, ketamine's tricky. First, you got it. <laughs> okay, you know what? Tell me later. Tell me later. <laughs> we cut to an establishing shot of Galveston, a pretty beach town on the Gulf. Oil rigs dot the seascape. A group of hippies march peacefully, holding pickets. No drilling. Remember deep water. Oil-free seas. In, in a rental car, uh, down the street, Dave talks to a couple of actors who are putting on Greenpeace t-shirts in the back seat. Okay, guys, remember, you say you're with Greenpeace the entire time. You cannot break character, no matter how long this thing lasts. W what if we get arrested? Gu guys, 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 you'll definitely get arrested, <laughs> all right? I want you punching cops, all right? There's, there's a 5K bonus for every day you spend in jail. He hands them each a brick, then opens their door. Go turn this thing into a riot. And finally, we cut to an establishing shot of Dallas. We're in the motherland. Dallas glitters. We're in a taxidermy shop, a cluttered store full of hunting trophies. Ray holds a clipboard. Dave points at two scrawny mounted deer heads. All right, now, which head for above my wet bar? Ray hesitates at her macabre choice. Dave leans in, dramatic. Rhea, I've been living in hotels for a decade. Now I finally get to stare at the same four walls every day. If I hang the wrong trophy, it'll start my new life on the wrong foot. I cannot, I, I cannot overstress the importance of this decision, but don't, don't overthink it. Uh, the one on the left, no, the one on the right. No, neither, wait, both. Okay, Jesus Christ, how the hell do you get out of bed every morning? Adderall. Can I please hire you an interior designer? That's what all the guys do when they get promoted. I don't need a designer. I've been imagining myself in that corner office since I was eight years old. Well, maybe these heads are just too small. You could get a great big moose head like your brother has. Not that. Chuck bought those fucking... He bought that moose on the internet, all right? These deer may be small, but at least I hunted them. I'm not going to hang anything in my wall unless I shot it myself. Dave scrutinizes the deer heads, looking for a sign. He sighs. I gotta go kill something bigger. <laughs> and we go to Bob's Steakhouse at night. 20 white men pick at seafood towers in a private dining room. Dave slugs gin. Gifford walks up and slaps him on the back. D, heard you're gonna turn the vote in Austin. Legend. How pumped are you that Bobby's finally retired? Hey, hey man, we all gotta move to Montana someday. A hostess <laughs> approaches. Gentlemen, your entrees are served. Gifford takes his seat. Waiters start to set down steaks. Dave spots his brother, Charles Whitney, basically Jeb Bush, drinking a Dr. Pepper. Charles notices Dave approaching. Dave, don't. My, my collar's fine. Come on now. Let me just Dave not, fixes Charles's collar. Charles squirms away. Oh, oh, still. Stop it. And I had it never right. I hate it. Never when you get it off down, now. You look like a fucking vagrant. Dang yeah. it. You're, you're four deep, and we haven't even had the entrees yet. You counting my drinks? I'm not an alcoholic. Well, look, slow down. 
You got the same gym sweat that dad used to get. Now, the world ain't a frat party it's, anymore. Dude, it's just a drink, man. I'm not, I'm not wearing blackface and pinching waitresses. No, fuck. All right, fine. Dude. Last one. You're the boss. Charles walks off, taking his place at the head of the table next to an empty seat. Dave takes his own seat. A waiter comes up. Uh, sir, I'm afraid we're out of steak, but we still have our miso salmon. Fuck, damn it. Salmon at a steakhouse? Uh, sorry, man. No, that's fine. And I'll, I'll take another G&T. Double on the G. Now that everyone's seated, Charles stands. The chatter quiets down for the boss. He begins to read a lame speech off note cards. Fellas, we're in tall cotton. We made big off of the shell, and it paid off. Texas is back, baby. <laughs> he holds for some tepid applause. But there is a storm coming. OPEC still swinging a noose over our heads. And even with Pruitt in D.C., we got those yahoos blaming us for the heat, blaming us for Harvey, giving our tax breaks to solar. Can't fill your truck up with sunshine. The room chuckles. <laughs> Charles loses his place reading. Swinging a noose over our... No. Uh, so it pains me to say goodbye to Bobby. He's been helping me steer this ship for 20 years. Let's hear it for Bobby, fellas. Come on now. Charles raises his Dr. Pepper, and everyone toasts Bobby, a man in his 70s. But a captain cannot sail without a navigator. So I'd like to introduce y'all to Whitney's new COO, Ravi Daptic. A door opens, and in walks Ravi Daptic, an innocuous Indian nerd holding a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Dave's still standing, more confused than upset. He addresses Charles across the room as everyone watches. I'm sorry, uh, wait, uh, who, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Ravi Daptic. <laughs> Coming off of six years at Barclays, I've been trying to poach him since we met at church. Church? What, like a, like a fucking snake church? A Christian, a, a Christian church. Christian church? Yes. This guy? Stop it, David. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Well, hold on, wait, 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 so, so, so. <laughs> hold on a minute, this guy gets Bobby's old office with the, with the, with the bathroom and the wet bar and the, the windows that look onto the pool at the Hilton, Yeah. this fucking guy? <laughs> well, yeah, I need my COO in the office next to me, can we move on, please? Dave collects himself, he walks around the large table to Ravi. Yeah, of course, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'm sorry, hey, uh, hey. <laughs> I'm just glad a qualified navigator is joining us. Hey, welcome aboard, man. But when Ravi goes for a handshake, Dave petulantly slaps the Dr. Pepper from his hand. Everyone reacts. Dave yells at Charles. That office is my fucking birthright. You can't give it to some dude named Duck Shit. It's a duck <laughs> Calm down, y'all. No one's replacing you. You're still going to be our fixer. Bobby interjects, trying to be friendly. Dave, come on now. You won't want to be COO anyway. It's a desk job. I was going to switch the fucking desk. <laughs> you sore about the promotion? Or is this literally about the office? Oh, I... Dave thinks. He's actually unsure. Is he being petty? The most truthful answer he can muster for his brother is... Fuck you, Chuck. Okay, now, boy, you need to take a breath. Uh, breath my cock, you old fuck. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Fuck this, whoa. man. Fuck what? Whoa, whoa, shut your little fucking with the woes and the hey, 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 hey's. Calm the fuck down. Shut your fucking cunts, all right? <laughs> you all owe me. 
Who, who, who covered up the earthquake in Kansas? Who took care of Gifford's hunting accident? Okay, D, D come on, dude. Come and on. Fisher's DUIs and Bobby's paternity suit. And Chuck, who photoshopped those pictures of you at the rodeo because you were too fucking... Oh, no, 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 don't you dare on that one. Don't you dare on that one. Don't you? That's enough. That is enough. That is enough. That is enough. Have some class now. This is a work function. It's a work function. Yes, it is. It's a work function. It is. You don't know what work is, motherfucker. While you've been out here deep throating your golf clubs, clubs, I've been out there. I've been out there hunting. All right. You want you want to eat the sausage, but nobody wants to know how the sausage gets fucking made. A, coll a colleague pipes up. Uh, I don't. I don't get the sausage thing. Oh, oh, you don't get the sausage thing, but you get, but you get Chuck's ship thing. I, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I, this is fucked up, man. I, okay, I'm out. I'm out. You just pissed off your grave digger, and he knows where the bodies are buried. Now, is is the grave digger also the sausage guy? <laughs> it's me, you fucking retard. <laughs> Dave storms out. Everyone looks around, unsure of what to say. A beat later, door, Dave storms back in dramatically. And I get a steak! No one's ever eaten my steak again. I'm not eating fucking salmon. <laughs> Dave steals the steak off Ravi's plate, but it's a sizzling fajita plate, so Dave howls as he burns his Ah, mouth. fuck! Dave throws down the steak and storms out again, knocking down seafood towers on the way. Huh, we're at Whitney Oil Building at night. Whitney Oil... Uh, tops a skyscraper. Dave marches up, hands wrapped in gauze, carrying a hammer. He swipes his key card and pushes a door, but it doesn't open, and he smashes his face on the glass. We're exterior dumpsters moments later. Blood trickles from Dave's smashed nose. He walks around the building behind the dumpsters, his phone to his ear. Hey, Rhea, they cut off my card. Come to the office and bring, bring cotton balls. He tries to open a service door, but it's jammed. Why is the service door closed? The only ones to know about the service door are Chuck and... He notices a sole office light in the otherwise black building. Rhea, are you inside? Did you, did you jam the service door? We're in the Whitney Oil Building, Dave's office, intercutting. <laughs> Rhea is, in fact, in Dave's office. She's got multiple laptops open. No! I mean, yes, I'm sorry. After your uh, incident, Charles called me. He's promoting me. On Rhea's side, we see that she is deleting email accounts. <laughs> Rhea, I'm going to be brutally honest with you right now. You're always brutally honest about everything. My brother does not care about you. He's just using you to get back at me. You're not going to let him insult me. You're not going to let him insult you like that, are you? No. I mean, yes? I, I have to go. I'm supposed to wipe your phone. No, no, no. Dave looks at the phone in his hand. His eyes go wide. Oh, well, no, wait, 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 wait. Stop. Rhea, stop, stop. Before you do this, I need to give you one last piece of advice as a friend. What is it? You don't want me as an enemy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. Dave looks down in horror as his phone locks and reads, erasing data. He launches the dead phone in the air with a scream. Ah! And now we're interior, block, black Dodge Ram 2500 power wagon later, blasting metal plays. Dave races down the highway in his enormous black truck, smoking a cigarette. He has an open Thomas God on the dash with petroleum club circled in marker. He notices his tank is empty. We're at an AMPM gas station at night. The power wagon waits near an idle gas pump. Nearby, Dave holds five credit cards in his hand as he barks into an old payphone. No, 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 no. But I'm telling you, my credit cards aren't stolen. They're in my hands. Yeah. Of course she answered the security question. It doesn't take a fucking genius to guess my favorite sports team. So none of my cards will work until 9 a.m.? It's my fucking money. It's my fucking money, and I need it now. Don't, 
Uh, hello? He Fuck. slams the phone, and he looks over at his truck. Moments later at the gas station, Dave holds up his Cartier watch to a redneck store clerk. Hey, man. <laughs> Look at this thing. I mean, worst case scenario, this watch is fake, and you're out, what, 20 bucks? Best case, you just made six grand. Go grab this chance, man. Be a fucking American. Be a goddamn American. Nah. <laughs> I reckon if that watch was real, you'd just go pawn it. I can't drive to a pawn shop because I don't have any gas. Uh, Perdón, me. Dave turns around to see a short Honduran man covered in blood. He reacts startled. No, no, este es sangre de pollo. Uh, se, uh, es blood de chicken. Oh, so you work at the slaughterhouse on I-35? Si, me llamo uh, Jorge Torres. The uh -huh. store clerk speaks to the Honduran man in Spanish about Dave. Es un mentiroso. Hey, shut the fuck up, man. <laughs> hey, listen, listen, uh, Jorge, I don't know what he said, but how would you like a $6,000 watch? It's a $6,000 fucking... It's okay, it's okay, you need... Huh? It's okay, you're in trouble, you take. Jorge fishes a 10 from his wallet and places it in Dave's hand. It's okay, you're in trouble, you take. Man, you really gonna take this poor Beaner's money? I don't get it, man. Is this a trick? Okay. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Dave slowly backs away with the poor man's money. The clerk shakes his head. And we're at the Petroleum Club of Dallas at night, an opulent club in a high-rise, buzzing with diners in suits and boots. Dave blows in on a mission. He walks around, searching for someone. He approaches a group of young rival oil execs. Any of you nobody's seen Roger? Whitney? Woo, that was fast. Worried about your little hissy fit? You already come to pass around your resume? Davey, good for you. Takes grit to show up here, head held high after you've humiliated yourself. <laughs> Aunt Alice, 60, waggish, drunk, a rough Ann Richards, approaches from another direction. Dave is getting it from all sides. Aunt Alice, I'm so glad you still afford a membership here. It's been so long since you've worked. You mean since you got me fired? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I thought your coke problem and secret family got you fired. Am I? Screw him, Al. Everyone knows he started those rumors so he could take your job like a slippery little Jew. Shit. Oh, Tom, you can't say that no more. I know. Shit, and I slipped. You've always <laughs> been a snake, Davey. It's about time you bit yourself in the ass. This was swell. This has been really fun, but I gotta go. Oh, you know what? You got... Got a little something on your nose there. Alice wipes her nose, embarrassed. Made you wipe, you old ski bunny. <laughs> we follow Dave as he walks away. He spotted his target, Roger, a jolly, rotund man eating ribs and playing games on his iPad. Oh, Dave, heard about tonight. <laughs> yeah, you and all of Dallas. Uh, hey, uh, you playing golf with Chuck tomorrow? You're playing golf with Chuck tomorrow, right? You give him a message? No, why don't you just call? Well, he had my assistant wipe my phone. <laughs> Whitney's play tough. Yeah, I agree. Will you tell him you made his point? I just want to, look, I, I just want to bury the hatchet, okay? I mean, we're brothers after all. Oh, it's real nice, son. Yeah, thanks. T just t tell him to meet me at Neiman's for lunch. We used to go there with our mom. Your mom is so attractive. That's fucking, yeah. Roger, come on, man. <laughs> and we're at Neiman Marcus at the Zodiac restaurant the next day, the venerable cafe in Neiman Marcus's flagship store. Charles sits with his big-haired wife, Molly, and teenage jock son, Cody. Where's Uncle Dave? I'm hungry. Cody, you ate McDonald's an hour ago. <laughs> My afternoon is stacked, and he's just 20 minutes late. This is just like your uncle. A waitress comes over with a tray of food. 
The other member of your party phoned to apologize that he's running behind, but he ordered ahead of all of you. Blueberry and smoothie and two jerky clubs. She sets down the smoothie for Charles, sandwiches for Molly and Cody. David remembered our orders, isn't that sweet? He's out of his mind if he thinks he can buy us lunch and it's water under the bridge. The entire board was there. Charlie, your BP, calm down, drink your smoothie. <laughs> Charles takes an annoyed sip. We cut to an establishing shot of Ennis, the same dusty town we saw in the opening sequence. In the Ennis Municipal Building, a rundown city government office, Dave enters holding a giant toy giraffe. He sees Margarita, overqualified and overworked, and Oscar, gay and over it. Uh, is this the Department of Land Management? Guilty. Has anyone ever told you your giraffe, it has beautiful eyes? Oh. Dave winks at Oscar as he hands the giraffe to Margarita. Miss Flores, I heard you have a two-year-old, such a cute age. Uh, I'm here on behalf of Whitney Oil, and uh, I'm Dave Whitney. We've met Mr. Whitney, you were here two weeks ago. Margarita is in fact the city official from earlier. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, you're the counselor with the safety concerns. Concerns? Right? You guys are pumping 80,000 gallons of poison through our aquifers every day. Safe fracking is like an empowered stripper. It's a myth. Right. And anyone who tells you different is trying to wash the cancer off their hands. Oscar claps. It's a good speech. How long have you been rehearsing that? Two weeks. I thought it was very good. Very good. <laughs> very good, yeah. No, Whitney Oil sees your point, and that's why we'd like you to order another environmental impact review. What? Why? But that could hold up your operation for weeks. Yeah, it's part of our green initiative. A review would just waste time. This city will keep letting Whitney Oil do whatever it wants unless I discover something huge. Something huge. Okay, well, what's something huge? Like a gas leak, an earthquake, evidence you use carcinogens in your carrier fluids. Oh, well, that's easy. We use tons of benzene. No shit. But thanks to your pal Dick Cheney, you can pump whatever you want into the ground and call it a trade secret. No, no, no. Dick Cheney's not my pal. Fuck that guy. He cheats at softball. Really? Yeah. Really? I think that's kind of sweet. <laughs> Look, I know what I'm asking for is unusual, but... I but think about all the families we're trying to protect. Dave pulls a stack of cash from his jacket and sets it on a desk. Think about your own family. Doesn't your daughter deserve a better life? The future is female. Wow. If Whitney is really that committed to the environment, I guess I can find a way to help. Margarita takes the cash, turns on her shredder, and shoves it in. Ooh. Woman, have you lost your mind? You oil guys think you can buy anyone. I don't know what your game is, but no one buys Margarita Flores, okay? The shredder, the shredder jams and breaks. The cash won't go in. Wait, it's a sign. Margarita, God wants us to take this bribe. As soon as you take money from a man like this, he owns you. That's okay, I'm worthless. <laughs> Ms. Flores, believe it or not, I really am on your side. Meeting's over, Whitney. She hands Dave the cash as she sees him out the door. Oh, and we were scheduled to meet with Charles Whitney today, not you. What happened to him? Oh, yeah, my brother was detained. And we go to the Neiman Marcus, the Zodiac restaurant, at the same time. Charles, Molly, and Cody eat lunch silently while scrolling on their phones. The waitress approaches the table with a note. Excuse me, Mr. Whitney left a note and asked that I wait until now to deliver it to you. What? Wait, Dave was already here? Uncle D's so weird. Charles takes the note and reads it aloud. <clears throat> Chuck. I've wanted that office since I was eight. 
Did you really think I'd eat a meal with you? You betrayed me. By the way, that sandwich Cody's eaten, it's got cilantro on it. Molly instinctively snatches the sandwich from her son's mouth. Cody's allergic to cilantro. Hello, hello, we need an EpiPen. Or a Benadryl. God, will you guys chill? The, we wait, don't, the waitress returns. We don't carry Benadryl, but I have a second note from Mr. Whitney. Why didn't you just give them to me both at once? Uh, your brother's instructions were very specific. You know, I'm going to have to get you fired for this. Your brother said that you'd say that, so he paid me very handsomely. She approaches a nearby manager and pours a drink on his head. I quit, needle dick. <laughs> she addresses the whole cafe. Jerry has three kids, but he still grabs his waitresses. Charles reads the second note. There's no cilantro on Cody's sandwich, idiot. All right. Even though he's definitely growing up to become a date rapist, I would never poison my own nephew. Aw, what a sweetheart. He goes on to say, Chuck, you on the other hand, and that's it. <laughs> How would he poison me? I don't have any allergies. Molly smells his smoothie. Charlie, this smoothie is full of rum. You didn't taste that. I thought it was coconut. I haven't had a drink in 20 years. You have to purge. Charles stumbles as he stands, knocking over his chair. We go to the exterior of Aunt Alice's ranch in the evening, a sprawling green horse ranch. Alice holds a shotgun with one hand as she finishes building a tower of cans of Sofia Coppola champagne with the other. She steps back, she aims, and Dave's Dodge rumbles up, shaking the tower down. He hops out. What the hell are you doing here? I want to destroy Whitney Oil, and I need your help to do it. What? Fuck no, I despise you. <laughs> that's what? what? I, well, that's why I need you. You can get me inside information. No, no one would suspect you're working with me because everyone knows you hate me. They're dead on. I even hate your little rat face. I told your folks to fix your teeth, and they never did, and now you got a rat face. <laughs> Look, Aunt Alice, if you help me do this, I will find your son in Ecuador. All right, I still have contacts down there. Aunt Alice casually aims her shotgun at Dave. I'm retired. Those rumors can't hurt me anymore. You don't have to lie. I was having you followed back then. I know why you went to rehab for nine months. I know you paid your family to disappear after I started the rumors. It's funny. I'm the only person who knows that the rumors weren't just rumors. It's funny. I'm glad my brother's too brain dead to see what a rotten fucking clam his boy turned into. Yeah. Yeah, he's pretty gone. Last time I went home, he was just pissing himself and calling me the N-word. Yeah, your dad is brain dead, your mom is dead dead, and Charlie hates you. I could blow your brains out there and ain't a soul who'd miss you. Mm -hmm. But then who would find your son? You've got some balls! Furious, Alice shoots her shotgun in the air. Dave cowers. Well, don't, 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 don't shoot me, don't shoot me. Look, I, I was just, I'm just doing what I learned from you. I didn't teach you to stab your family in the back. That's what we do. We don't stab people in the front. But now I'm offering to find him for you. God damn it! Alice throws down her gun. She grabs a new can of Sophia from a cooler. She looks out at her horses as she catches her breath. He was the cutest little thing, my kid. Wonder how old he is now. Yeah. I mean, 
it was 20 years ago, so he, <laughs> he'd be 20. If you want to get back at Charlie, why don't you just pork his wife? You can't take down Whitney Oil. Oh, yeah, I can. I'm going, to use, I'm going to use a small town to stop their fracking expansion. I'm going to dismantle the whole operation piece by piece. I just need you to get me the emails, anything on carrier fluids, find out where Chuck's been going, who's, who he's been meeting with. How? I don't, I don't work at Whitney Oil. Yeah, but you're still a Whitney. So you'll always have access. That's the thing about, about family. They keep inviting you to stuff even if you hate them. Uh, game nights, fucking insufferable barbecues. Mm. You want me to be your mole inside the family, hmm? Alice takes a long sip, finishing her drink. She crushes the can. If you double-cross me, I will blast your crooked pecker off. I know it's crooked. I used, I used to change your diapers. You have my word. Dave extends his hand for a shake. Alice spits and walks away. Go shake a cactus. This don't mean we're friends. And we're interior Whitney Oil Building in Charles's office the next morning. A moose head hangs on the wall. Charles fiddles with a one-day AA chip as he dunks <laughs> as he dunks Oreos in milk. He's with Ravi and Rhea. So we need to reschedule Beaumont, Ennis, and the, the, the Skype with Norway. David's little stunt cost me a whole day of meetings. Idiot. Breathe. At least you made it to the one meeting that does matter. Charles takes a calm, slow breath. An assistant comes on the intercom. Mr. Whitney, I've got Senator Hahn on line one. Put him through. The intercom beeps. Ravi and Rhea listen as Charles talks. Senator Hahn, to what do I owe the pleasure? My son got rejected from Vassar, you cocksucker, and I'm changing my vote. Wait, what does this got to do with college? Oh, you being cute? I'm going to make sure the whole caucus votes for regulation. The line goes dead. Charles starts shoveling Oreos in his mouth. Oh, no. Dave had a deal with Senator Hahn to get his son into Vassar. What's his son want to go to Vassar for? It, it's a good school. C c calm down. Rhea, can you please give us a room, please? Rhea looks disappointed as she exits. Robbie puts a calm hand on Charles's shoulder like an AA sponsor. Charles, we can't afford to have you spiral this close to the Gazprom merger. The Russians tend to get, you know, a little skittish. I can't stop thinking about that smoothie, dude. It's like kissing Jesus. Okay, clearly your brother is a trigger. You need to put him behind you. It's time to hire a new fixer to tie up all his loose ends. You really think we can find someone who can do what Dave did? Robbie refills Charles's milk, condescending. Drink some milk. I'll make a call. And we go to an establishing shot of Charles and Molly's house, a sprawling Tudor estate guarded by a black gate with a big W. We're in the backyard. Alice sips wine by the pool with Molly and four Texan housewives. They've all got paperbacks of the goldfinch. <laughs> Alice is the only one in jeans. Alice wants to kill herself. Oh, Alice, I am so glad you finally joined us. What kept you away from our book club all these years? Uh, had a lizard problem at the ranch. I've just been uh, killing lizards. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about me. How, how have you been? Charlie's still dragging you on his boring work trips. You folks going to the Middle East anytime oh soon? Oh my God, Alice! 
is. I almost forgot to invite you to the barbecue on Saturday. I um, got to check my schedule. Is this part of the book club? No, silly. No, Sarah throws a little cookout mm -hmm. after every Aggies game. Y'all get together every game in addition to the book club. Everybody comes. Chuck and Molly, Bob and Darcy, Bill and Betty, Lance and Amy, <laughs> Ben and Mikey, Tom and Tammy, Ethan and... Toshiko. Uh, there's going to be brisket pit, a sushi station, a nacho bar. Uh, Alice lets out an involuntary uh, groan and stands up. I, I got to use the little boy's room. And we're in interior Charles's study moments later. It's a lavish study. Alice quietly enters, snooping around. She spots a laptop, but it's password protected. She quietly rifles through desk drawers and finds a post-it note with a dozen passwords for PayPal, Amazon, etc. She types one into the computer. No dice. Tries another. Nope. Just then, Molly opens the door. Alice quickly pockets the post-it and makes an excuse for being there. Uh, I always love this room. Look at, look, at, look at my grandpa up there. She points to a portrait. Oh, I thought that was your uncle. Uh, once they're in a painting, I think of him as a grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yolanda's making sangria. You want pink or white? Uh, white with an Advil chaser. Molly turns to exit. Alice gets an idea and feigns friendliness. Oh, wait, wait, Molly. You folks did a safari last Christmas, right? Yes, Africa was so peaceful. <laughs> Plus, it was our last trip, you know, before Cody started masturbating, so it holds a special place in my heart. <laughs> you, uh, you got any pictures? I, I might go. It's, it's been a while since I had a vacay. Molly types a password into the computer, unlocking it. Alice smiles, pleased with herself, as Molly opens a Photos app and scrolls through vacation photos. They took so many food pictures, it was so embarrassing. Oh my God, Cody! Molly scrolls up to dozens of shirtless selfies of her son, Cody. He told me he stopped doing this. <laughs> he sends these to everyone at school. Girls, boys, everyone. Uh, this... This isn't Charlie's computer. No, Charlie uses some old weird laptop from work. Yeah, I see. Um, so, it turns out I'm free next week. You want to carpool to this barbecue? And we cut to an establishing shot of Texas Rangers Stadium at night. We're interior bathroom. Charles cautiously enters a private handicapped bathroom where he finds Liam Lennox, a terrifying Scottish man. Uh... I'm supposed to meet a fella named Liam. You him? No. I'm waiting here for a grinder buttfuck. Just surprised you're a Rangers fan. Uh, never met a European who likes baseball before. And you still haven't. We're here so you'd have to enter through a metal detector. Ah. Guess you can't be too careful. <laughs> I imagine you'd like to get paid. Charles pulls out a manila envelope. Liam snatches it. When I'm done, you'll leave a second payment in an Equinox locker that I specify. No paper trails. All right, so you'll uh, you just text me or something after when it's done? What did, I, what, what did I say about paper trails? If you ever send me a text message, I'll cut off your fucking thumbs. Liam hands him an old flip phone. This is the only way we talk from now on. You call. Got it? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> how, does, how does Ravi know you? How do you know each oh, other? Oh, it's, it's a funny story. He was working at Barclays, and I was working at none of your fucking business. Now count to 50 before you leave. Go on, boss. Count. One. One. Two. Yeah, two. Three. three four. Liam exits the bathroom as a shaken Charles continues to count. 
We're in an interior hotel room in the afternoon. Dave opens the door. Alice enters a cheap, nondescript hotel room. We hear sporadic dings from Alice's phone throughout. Why are we in a hotel, you pervert? Can't risk being seen together anymore, so our houses are out. Well, there better be a minibar. She mm -hmm. sees a mini fridge and opens it. We hear a ding. Ugh, those hens clucked me into their flock, and now I'm on all their goddamn text message chains. My ass hasn't stopped dinging all day. Ding. Alice takes a wine bottle from the fridge. She puts her phone inside, closes it. The dings get softer. She has a drink. Ugh. Next time, bring a good bottle with you. I'm too old to be drinking this cheap hotel wine. Nevertheless, she keeps choking it down. Yeah, I, I actually did bring that wine that you're drinking there myself, but yeah, I hear you. Alice tosses down a flyer for a church night market in Ennis. City councilor from Ennis goes to this thing every week. Go catch her in a good mood and recruit her. Not yet. I'm still trying to dig up dirt. But her life is so boring, there's, just, there's nothing to blackmail. You can't extort this woman. She thinks she's Joan of Arc. You need to actually get her on your side. Uh-huh. Okay, how? She doesn't trust you, so you gotta tell her the truth. Tell her why you wanna destroy Whitney Oil. Because I fucking hate my brother. Beyond that, you're gonna ruin your career and burn every bridge you got for this. You gotta tell her why. The real reason, deep down. Because I hate Chuck. He promised me that office. This is fucked up, man. That's it? God damn it, men are so fucking simple it makes me sick. You, you can't tell her that. Tell her... Alice darkens as she thinks about her own life. Tell her you did a lot of hurt for Whitney Oil. Tell her as you get older, your sins start coming back to haunt you. They scream at you in the dark, and you try to drown out the noise with whiskey and Jesus, but it don't work. Tell her you, you gave up your chance to start your own family because you cared so much about your family name, and they still spit you out like gum, but, 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 but tell her that you and still And we match cut to the church parking lot at night. Dave sits with Margarita and Oscar finishing Alice's speech. I still have time to do something real. And I want to use it to tear down my family's legacy, stone by stone. I may not care about global warming or endangered gophers, but we both, we both want to stop this oil company. So let's help each other do it. Oscar puts a sympathetic hand on Dave's. They're at a night market in the parking lot of a Mexican church. Food vendors, a ranchero band, old men watching soccer on a small TV. That was very weird. <laughs> and I'd like for you to go. Margarita. I'm sorry, Oscar, but he's a liar. He said he gave up his chance to have a family? What? He's like 50. I'm 40. What? He's full of shit. Margarita, he's an oil defector. He's corrupt. His face is corrupt. He looks like the little devil emoji. Good! We always follow the rules and we always lose. I want to win for once. We're trying to save the world with tote bags while guys like him are raping the ground beneath our feet. I I wouldn't put it like that. <laughs> and I want a bribe. My phone's cracked. Every time I swipe, I cut my thumb. You know how hard it is to be gay in this town without dating apps? What do we have to lose? Margarita looks at Oscar and sighs. She gives in. I can file for an impact review. Yes, yes, thank you. All right. But it'll only stop the operation for six weeks. After that, it'll come to a citywide vote, and people here love Whitney Oil. You did promise to turn them all into the Beverly Hillbillies. Dave looks out at the crowd. Let's start changing some hearts. 
and we're interior car at night. State Senator Hahn is driving home. Suddenly, a cigarette is lit in the back seat, revealing Liam. Senator Hahn screams. Rock, oh, what the hell? Calm down. Drive normally. Who are you? I was on the road, Senator Hahn. I'm here to talk to you about the deal you made regarding your son. I'll be here from Whitney. So you're going to get Larry into Vassar? No. But you will vote against regulation. Oh, yeah? Why's that? Because if you don't, Larry won't have to worry about college because he'll be dead. Han stops at a red light and Liam opens the door to leave. But before he does, he hands Senator Han a hollow point bullet. Blue Civic, swim team, free period on Tuesdays. Girlfriend works at Foot Locker. Do not doubt me. And we go back to the church parking lot at night. Dave, Margarita, and Oscar wait near a taco cart, trying to chat up a local as he gets his food. He clearly wants to get away. Sir, I'm talking about your family's health. Yeah, I, I already signed something, sorry. Walks away. Dave turns to Margarita. Now, these people really don't want to talk to us. Surprised? You were offering these people oil money before. Now you're asking them to give it back. The taco cart lady hands Dave an overloaded tray. He sets it at a table and addresses some uninterested passersby. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. Uh, tolos. Uh, please take a taco. They're free. Uh, I just want a minute of your time. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. Just no one's coming over. Oscar starts eating a taco. That's a dumb idea. Maybe it'll help if you eat one. Dave picks up a taco and frowns. This, uh, this has cilantro on it. Yeah, it's a taco. Right. Can you, can you ask her to give me one without cilantro? They don't do substitutions. But I'm allergic. Why people always say that? Do you, do you want to insult everyone? Dave looks around. He's a white man in a suit surrounded by poor farmers. Fine. He eats the taco and sits next to a couple old men. Uh, buenos dias, uh, senores. Uh, I'd like to t um, talk to you about your families, your familias. He starts to choke. He stands up. Oh. Oh, great. Oh, my throat's closed up. You're, you're really allergic? I thought you just didn't like cilantro. No, it's real. I'm allergic. Then why did you eat it? Because you told me to. <laughs> this looks way worse than if you just didn't eat a taco. <laughs> no shit. What do we do? There's, a, there's, a, there's an EpiPen in my truck. Please get the EpiPen. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar and Margarita run off. Dave doubles over and we fade to black. We fade in, we're exterior parking lot, it's evening. A beat up Hyundai lurches into a parking lot outside a massive stucco apartment building. Interior of the Hyundai at the same time. Inside the car sits Jorge Torres, the short Honduran man from the gas station. He is again caked in blood from his shift at the slaughterhouse. He regards a sad plastic bag of AMPM pizza on the passenger seat. He notices his reflection in the rear view mirror and takes off his hairnet. We're in an apartment hallway moments later, Jorge walks down the ratty hallway. An old white guy gives him a dirty look. Jorge stares at the floor as they pass. He gets to his door. He stops when he notices a paper bag at his doorstep. He opens it and sees an expensive Cartier watch. He reaches inside to find a note. Quieres un trabajo? Would you like a job? And we cut to black. Discordant music rises. End of show. <laughs> This holiday season, we're flooding the Max Fun store with our biggest ever new product launch. 17 brand new items from some of your favorite shows. I bet you know someone who needs a new shirt or mug, maybe a hoodie. 
Cozy up in a pair of MaxFun logo socks or keep the sun out of your eyes with a Rocket Dad hat. There is literally no better holiday gift for the MaxFun fan in your life than some new gear. And hey, pick yourself up a little something too. You deserve it. Check it all out at MaxFunStore.com. That's MaxFunStore.com. All right, I'm here with Mayhar Sethi. Hey, Mayhar. Hey, guys. Um, How are you? I'm good. It, it is just me, but uh, I keep assuming okay. I keep assuming you're with a bunch of people, but I that's just because you have so much gravitas, you know. I, I think that's what my gravitas is just like a couple extra yeah. people. Um, so, you know, first thing I want to do is this, this relatively new feature, which is where I start off by telling the writer my favorite joke in their pilot. And I think my favorite joke in The Prince was when Ann Alice is saying, you know, he was the cutest little thing, my kid. I wonder how old he is now. And they responds, like, I mean, it was 20 years ago, so he's 20. My favorite <laughs> joke. Just getting that out of the way. Uh, well, that's a really cool new feature. It's my favorite feature of your podcast so far. <laughs> Man. Um, so tell out. me, because we, you know, we don't really, we only met through this. Uh, how, how'd you, you've got all these amazing credits. How did you start off, you know, writing comedy? Um, well, I guess I, I suppose that my story is probably one of the most, um, standard that you could have in, uh, in this business. Now people are sort of like getting into the business or like into writing through like sketches and web shows and all sorts of amazing, crazy things. And I just, I like really went a, a pretty, a pretty direct route. I wanted to, I knew I wanted, I guess I knew I wanted to do TV and not movies, which was unusual for like a college student. I went to NYU and uh, studied film there, but I, uh, I sort of, majored in TV and I studied under this um, uh, Seinfeld writer named Charlie Rubin um, who was sort of my mentor in college. Um, he wrote the uh, famous um, uh, marine biologist episode of Seinfeld. Um, so I sort of like that's I like just went hard at it in college and then came out to LA. Um, I interned for a lot of people there while I was at school came out to Los Angeles worked at an agency, as um, some people do, because I didn't really know anyone in LA, and I, I got really lucky um, landing a desk there. And then from there, I ended up becoming a writer's assistant on a show called on a show that never aired. What uh, was that? See, it was called The Sigils Table. It had an amazing cast: Jonathan Cho, Alicia Silverstone, Rhea Seahorn, who's now on um, Better Call Saul, mm-hmm. and Albert. Um, and it was run by these great, great writers named Bill Martin and Mike Schiff. Um, then I um, worked for them again on a show they had called Cavemen um, as a writer's assistant. Uh, then did the same thing on a show called The Cleveland Show. And The Cleveland Show was where I got my first sort of uh, big break. And I um, got uh, bumped up to become a writer there at The Cleveland Show. So that was my first official writing job. So it's pretty like it's a, it was a, it's a pretty linear trajectory there. Didn't do. A, I wasn't like a coal miner that then wrote like like a one man show about being a coal miner or something. Right. I should have just lied. That's what I did actually. <laughs> yeah, I guess if there's the standard, if there is such a thing as the standard apprenticeship kind of route to writing, 
it's what you just described. Yeah, it's pretty old school. I feel like it doesn't happen that way as much anymore. That's kind of like, it's like how people became writers on the Mary Tyler Moore show or something, it feels like. But don't you think there are still writer's assistants who are getting promoted to writer? I mean, that's still a, that's oh, certainly 100%. still a path. Yeah, it's absolutely still a path. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's one of the best paths. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say I gave a writer's assistant his first script um, last year. And it's like one of those, it's a really nice moment between showrunner and writer. I remember when that happened with me and um, my first showrunner boss, uh, Rich Appel. It was like a very cool feeling. Um, but yeah, I, I think it happens. It happens now, but not as often as you would expect. I think a lot of people take more circuitous routes, which is yeah, just as good. No, for sure. How did you, you know, as a writer's assistant, what do you think it was that made your showrunner feel like you were capable of being given a script? Oh, well, I mean, I suppose it's a, a, a kind of a, a, a weird thing is I actually got, I got offered a job on a different show as a writer. I was, <laughs> I went and interviewed at a different show and they, uh, they offered me a, a writing gig. And then that was sort of what spurred my, um, my employers at the Cleveland show to then, um, asked me to stay and bump me up as a writer there. So it was sort of a, that's, that's fairly untraditional, I guess. Right. And so, and I guess the, oh, the absence always makes the heart grow fonder. And that's, that was the case in my like first sort of bump up. And, but do you, were you pitching from behind the keyboard as a writer's mm -hmm. assistant and because I've had writer's assistants sort of ask me then, I've, and I've dealt with this with writer's assistants, finding that sweet spot where you pitch some, you pitch enough for the for the showrunner to realize, oh, this person may have some chops, but not so much that you're overstepping your boundary as a writer's assistant. Was that a hard line for yeah. you to walk? I know. I think I think I I learned it over time because I was a writer's assistant a couple times before that, and I think, you know, when in doubt, I mean, this is this is going to sound very not egalitarian, but I think when in doubt, don't pitch. Depending on the size of the room, if it, if it's a big room and people are taking over each other, oftentimes it's not needed, and that's the, that's a huge thing about it. As you know, you've been on so many amazing shows with giant staffs, obviously that like. There's, you know, several different skill sets of being a TV writer, and one of them is sort of like knowing the calibration of a room, and that's, I think that's one of the bigger, um, the bigger uh, skill or the more important skills to have. It's sort of like you're all trying to push this ball uphill, but if there's enough hands on it, just let it go. But you can tell, sort of, you get you gain an innate sense of knowing, like, well, this is a time when even my even my piddly contribution is worthwhile because nobody seems to like have something for this joke or nobody like has an idea for a cut like that yeah and so that's I, I i very sort of incrementally very slightly made myself useful in that way but i think it's a real i i it's a i think it's a real um you know uh, uh dangerous uh leeway to give sometimes you don't want everybody sort of like trying to prove their you know um number one because then it just turns into a shouting match yeah, I, I always say to writer assistants, like your ba your batting average better be really, really high. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and that means yeah. like not swinging too 
too often. I mean, you're, you're almost giving the advice of like, if you pitch, it better really, really be good. But that's a hard thing to say to someone because, you know, good is in the eye of the beholder. Um, but I think the point you make is really important, which is like when the room is just at a dead halt and completely stuck, you know, anything, you know, a pitch at that point from anyone is going to be greatly appreciated. Totally. Uh, rather than a writer assistant jumping in when the room is on a roll and just sort of like adding a topper to someone else's pitch. It's like, we don't need you to do that. Yeah, yeah. Or there's the, the I guess if we're talking about, we're writers talking about pet peeves. My, my biggest pet peeve is that person who like takes up time just very loudly laughing and repeating somebody's joke that's obviously <laughs> already going in. Um, but I think it's also, it depends on the room. Like now I, I, I had a room that only had four people in it last year. And so the writer's assistant, like, you know, the uns you know, the untold thing is that on a lot of small shows, the writer's assistant is basically a writer that also types, you know? Right. So, it, you know, it, it also depends on the situation, which I think those situations are changing more and more. And the writer's assistant has, you know, the ear of the showrunner early in the morning and late at night when all the other lazy fat writers go home to their <laughs> nice lives. Um, you know, the writer's assistant is often there and that's a great time to like let it be known that you're creative and have jokes to tell yeah first one in last one out kind of thing was there one of was there a show you worked on where you feel like you learned the most um as a as a writer's assistant as a writer no, just as a general. writer as a writer oh gosh i mean i guess the the two big ones for me um are it's always sunny uh, in Philadelphia, that's where I, um, you know, I think I learned a lot about um, pushing yourself to tell as as a fresh a story as you can, and like making and not being lazy about turns, and you know, um, just really, uh, it's, it's a show that like kept striving, even though I don't think it it needed to. They kept topping themselves and getting better and better. Um, and I, like I still have like many of my best friends are writers from that show, um, and BoJack as well. Um, Raphael Bob Blacksburg is a, was a writer and a friend I had worked on on a previous show that never aired called Us and Them. And then sort of seeing him go from being a very young writer to just like snapping into, I think, the most adept showrunner I've ever worked for was a, a real, um, was really sort of uh, inspiring to see. And I think it's one of those shows that, I think he's one of those people that is going to get one of those reputations like Vince Gilligan, of like sort of like not only like a really brilliant writer, but also a total mensch at the same time. And I think it's, you know, that's a that's a type of person to aspire to be as a writer in general. Hmm. Like makes listens to everybody. The contributions are equally valued from everybody, but that doesn't compromise like the vision that he has uh, as well. And that and that was like Bojack was one of those shows where Netflix was still kind of a tiny little thing back then. It wasn't sort of like. Netflix, when BoJack started, was not what Netflix is today. So we we felt a little like an under-the-radar kind of thing um, when we were starting out. Yeah, you do wonder whether that show on Netflix today would, A, get made or, and, B, you know, be able to make it make it through. Yeah, you never know. But, I mean, I think they're, like, every network has, like, I feel like networks at this point, especially a place like Netflix, Netflix is more like, when you think about Netflix, I think you think about it more. I would think more about it more like Disney or Viacom than a channel because there's it's so huge and there's so many facets to it. Um, you know. Yeah. So but when I, did you make the leap to to 
developing and, and writing your own original pilots? Uh, the fir my first um, stab at development was with um, uh, a small, well, a small, but a, an offshoot of Fox animation called ADHD. They were doing a block of animation on Sunday nights um, in the same vein of Adult Swim, and it was run by this um, uh, gentleman, Nick Weidenfeld, really smart dude, and was doing some really cool, crazy cartoons that were, you know, more left of center than The Cleveland Show or The Simpsons. They were closer to, closer in um, tone to like Rick and Morty or Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And I had a half hour pilot there that was sort of a cross between Archer and Indiana Jones, um, an animated pilot there. And that was my first sort of stab at animation. And it was really like the, the crazy thing about animation is you get to meet every or like almost every amazing actor that you'd want to meet because it's it's like asking them to come in for a two minute audition or read like something for for no time. So you get to like, it's a really cool experience um, having people come in and read for you in an animated show. And that was a that was a really fun one. Unfortunately, it was one of those cool ideas at Fox that ended up sort of like not really working out there. And now a few of those cartoons are on FXX, which I think is a new and interesting home for them. Okay, so that was the first one. And that so that did what what happened to that? that it, we didn't uh, of my many unmade uh, pilots, that one went uh, that one we drew a bunch of the characters. We um, brought in a bunch of actors to uh, you know to audition and we sort of like figured out who would be the cast. Um, but unfortunately, it was their only, or I, I believe it was one of one of the two stabs at doing a half-hour show um, in that block, and they were mostly doing 11-minute shows. So I think between that and like not having exactly the right cast together, I think I think that's why I got passed on. But I'm not sure, or maybe the script was just terrible. <laughs> maybe that's it. I'm sure it wasn't that. <laughs> uh, and then were there others in between that and the Prince? Um. In between that and the prince, um, I guess I I don't know if you would consider it development, but I wrote this um, I wrote this pilot on spec called Keeping the Lights On, but then uh, a writer named Robert Thomas um, really sparked to it, and we were trying to we were going around trying to sell it, but didn't really um, that really that didn't really hold up. And then oh no no yeah the legendary stuff which you and I have talked about. I had these pilots um, with Legendary that I that was this massive undertaking that took me years. Um, we it was two pilots um, that we were trying to sell in conjunction with each other. One was live action and one was animated. They both lived in the same world and they sort of were supposed to play off of each other as um, almost like um, kind of like how Marvel has shows that sort of play off of each other in the Marvel universe. We were trying to create an entire universe um, post-apocalyptic universe with uh, two sort of competing half-hour comedies. Um, um, and surprise, surprise, <laughs> I didn't sell that. <laughs> Tough to find a home, I guess. It's a, it's a, it's a lot for yeah. that work to take on. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a, we, like, we made toys. We had, like, that one was one where we went really far down the line, um, like, in development. Some really cool people at Legendary and my friends at my very good friends at Robot Chicken, Seth Green and Matt Senreich, um, uh, were the ones sort of like helping spearhead that. 
so that was I that was after ADHD, and then after that was when I did um, the Prince at HBO. And and with the Prince, was that just you? Did you have uh, a, a company, a production company attached, or how did that how did it sell? I did have a production company attached, um, the same one that I'm working with now, uh, called Rough Cut. Uh, the main producer there is named Ashitala. He uh, was a producer on the British Office, and we met each other through a circuitous um, set of circumstances. My second time using that word, uh, but uh, and then yeah, we sold it to HBO. Originally, it was called Big. It was called Big Swinging Dicks when I pitched it. <laughs> then, as we were like getting into the writing process, I really started to hate that name and changed it to The Prince, which. Uh, was a lot more fitting, frankly, I think. Yes, but do you think was, and HBO was fine with that change? They weren't attached to Big Swinging Dicks as an attention-getting <laughs> title? You know, yeah, I don't, I don't think they were attached to Big Swinging Dicks. I think, and like, when I, when I pitched it, it was like, you know, I, I guess it, it, it seemed like, um, you know, obviously a comment on the type of people that I, you know, it's a, pilot about the oil industry, so it's a comment on them. But like, I, I realized that unless you know what the show's already about, it, it doesn't seem like commentary. It seems like you think, like I think that's cool to be a big swinging dick, you know? Um, and I didn't, and I also realized that I didn't want the show to be, you know, parodic or like to, to seem like it was coming from a more, from a judgmental place like that. Um, and I basically, I stole, like three moves that happen in the pilot directly from the book, The Prince. And I, my intention was to keep stealing tricks from Machiavelli's The Prince and applying them to the main character. Ah, okay. I, it's been long enough since I was in college and reading that book that I totally missed those illusions, but that's, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, and that, that was the hope. It's like, hey, if it's, if it's old enough, no, no, no one cares that you're stealing it. Uh, so how do you, cause it's obviously a, um, not a straight ahead comedy. How do you approach the balance of the drama and comedy? And, and were there times where you felt like you were, you were tending too, too dramatic? Um, what was your sort of strategy um, in terms of that balance? I suppose, you know, in a weird way, I don't think I really thought, I didn't think about the balance between drama and comedy as much as I did, um, like, dr drive, I guess. Not that, like, not that comedies don't have drive, but for me, it was more about, like, having, like, a really urgent, angry story engine that, like, it was a story that I wanted to see, like, finish, you know? I, and it was, like, a it was more that sort of like, I was trying to capture that feeling when like your blood starts to boil. And that's what it was, and, and that to me was almost naturally funny. So like, I think like there are some vaguely dramatic moments in it, in the, in the, in the pilot, but I, I don't think it's, and I think there's a couple like heartfelt sad moments, but I, in some ways I think, I guess obviously Bojack had, had a lot of this too, I think if the characters are sort of, if the characters are really alive in your head, they naturally have both sad and funny and dramatic moments, you know? I guess um, in some ways, like, 
a movie like The Sopranos is like closer in, or a, a show like The Sopranos is like close in tone to the the kind of thing I aspire to do, or Pulp Fiction as well. These are things that are like there are plenty of like laugh out loud moments, and then plenty of like dramatic ones as well. Um, right. But um, in some ways, like there were difficulties in the pilot, and but that wasn't one that sort of like that I remember being particularly difficult. So what were um, the difficulties? A couple of the difficulties were balancing characters that you really love, like or characters that I, you know, I think I, I want the audience to really love, but not oversaturating a pilot with them. Uh, one thing that happened was like, I think balancing the two of the like the, the two main side. There's a main character named David Whitney, and then he's got sort of two people that he's working with. One is an old enemy, his aunt, and then one is sort of a new friend who was an old enemy um, named Margarita. And sort of balancing which which of them you would see more kind of went in favor of Aunt Alice's things um, um, went along just because that character popped harder on the page. Uh, right. And HBO definitely wanted more of that character as we started um, as like the draft started coming in, um, and I think with good reason. Yeah, she's so great. And yeah. and, and don't worry about spoilers because we'll be <laughs> play this interview after the read. So oh, I didn't know that. Okay, listeners oh, will cool. have heard the pilot oh, already. Okay. Uh, yeah, they're both uh, great yeah. characters. I mean, I love Margarita too, uh, and just the way you introduce her and then bring her back, and 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 how what a reluctant ally she is and and even at the end it seems like she's not totally sold on on dave thanks that thanks. was that that was the i mean that was the toughest character to write and i think that's like and i mean i i pitched her as basically lisa simpson and which is like a silly thing for me to do because i've heard enough simpsons writers say that lisa simpson was the lisa was the hardest one to write on that show and like sort of the person that's closest to you like i'm very much uh margarita <laughs> like that's who i am in the pilot like like an, an ultra self-righteous liberal. And those are, I think, often the ones that are, you know, they're hardest to really, like, make funny because, you know, I guess you think they're right. <laughs> so it's right. hard to find the foibles. And um, uh, also, there was a lot of, had to get a, a lot of pipe out through her, um, through her dialogue. And I thought that would be really difficult. But HBO actually really gravitated towards it. And so did my producers, they, uh, that sort of like, sort of the fun facts about like that line about Dick Cheney is absolutely true. All the shit about benzene, all that stuff is true. Sure, and I the, thought, Hall the Halliburton loophole. Yeah. Uh, um, and I thought like, oh, this is, it ended up becoming sort of fun that like, you know, uh, uh, it, it's not the worst thing to sort of, for people to learn a, a couple things through a comedy. Um, and I'm and still I get some of that across. I should point out for those listeners, because it is a, show set in the oil and gas industry when mayhar says pipe he's he's actually <laughs> he's just referring to exposition that is yeah. a comedy yeah. a writer term for i'm exposition. not referring to keystone yeah um yeah, yeah. How, how much had you thought through where the show was going to go um it's completely th thought through it was supposed i always wanted it to be a six episode first season six episode seven second season like sort of and i had the idea to sort of um, wrap up a certain story by the penultimate episode and then segue into 
another even worse story uh, by uh, season two. But in I can't actually I actually am reluctant to spoil that because at the moment I'm trying I've uh, I'm in the process of trying to develop it into a movie um, with somebody, um, and in in some ways. A, st- a show like this, maybe, maybe I, it always should have been a movie um, in retrospect, because I wonder if a, if a network has the desire for a show with that limited of a, of a life, you know? Depends, though. There's so many outlets. Yeah. That no, British, mo- the British model is, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, but you had each episode, you, you really had it plotted out. You knew what episode four was in episode five. You, you had it. Well, uh, yeah, so, um, maybe I was misleading. I, I don't think I had ever, I didn't have the increments necessarily mapped out. But you out. knew where you wanted to get to. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, yeah, I, you yeah, know, whatever. No one's going to, no one <laughs> who might <laughs> buy a movie is like necessarily going to be dissuaded by this, but I wanted him to end up, um, stopping his brother's oil firm, but in the process uh, sell out the town to um, uh, a slaughterhouse that like that the sort of process like you're sort of like getting teased uh, the slaughterhouse with Jorge at the beginning but it, it turns into like a, a, a thing about the meat industry as well by uh-huh. season two um, and I also wanted that that Jorge Torres thing um, you meet the sort of uh, the Honduran guy at uh, the end and this is actually I mean you know well before their the caravan and all these things, but he's a climate refugee, and we were going to have a little bit of a flashback showing like how Jorge ended up in Texas. And the ironic thing about like a lot of these people is like climate change caused by the oil industry, largely caused by America, um, is what's driving a lot of these like world events that we you know I think quite selfishly are like oh a handful of people might be taking some of the jobs that no white people would ever want. They're actually being driven from their countries because of like starvation because of climate change. So it's kind of a it's kind of a roundabout. Like there there were a handful of um, sort of side characters that were going to like we were going to find out through the course of events like were inexorably being brought together because of you know things that the Whitney family were part of a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, the the ending is really interesting in terms, of, you know, ending on that character, that seemingly just very minor character. Um, so it was definitely one of the things I was curious about. Is it seemed like you really had something in mind with that character, and now I'm hearing like, boy, you you really did. Yeah. And I thought it was, I thought it was a kind of a fun, like an idea of him, like a person who has just all the pathos in the world, who's had all like. Him, he would be, Jorge would be the best sort of like foil to um, to Dave, I think, actually, even more than any of the other characters that you met. And sort of juxtaposing that very, very um, sort of recent Honduran Im- immigrant with the Mexican American, with the, you know, the Hispanic Americans as well was a, was a dynamic I was excited to play with. But I don't think you see that often. We played with it a little on a show that I did. Uh, were those sort of like dynamics in a sh- on a Netflix show that I did last year called The Ballad of Hugo Sanchez, sort of like the relationship between Mexico and Central America is is fraught as well. It's one and one that isn't talked about that much in the U.S. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so now you're you've got a pilot you're working on now. 
Yep, we are. Um, I am prepping a pilot that we're shooting uh, next week. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us anything about that one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it doesn't have a title yet. Right now, we're calling it the Untitled Mayhar Sethi Project. It is a mockumentary about a bunch of DJs uh, who live and work in North Las Vegas, uh, which is a sort of a working class suburb of Las Vegas, um, which is a lot like uh, my hometown of Bakersfield, California, which is a sort of like a big sprawling um, southwestern city. Uh, it's also very, it's also serialized, but it, it's uh, certainly less um, uh, outright political. And uh, uh, it's, um, it's an adaptation of a British show, actually. Uh, called People Just Do Nothing. Uh, but the British transposed to North Las Vegas. I Where does the British show take place? Um, a working class suburb of London called Brentford. Okay. And, and in that... Sorry. Go on. Uh, the, the pilot is for who? Amazon. Sorry, you were saying the British one? Oh, the, the so the British show was on BBC... Uh, is on BBC Two right now. They're finishing their fifth and final season. Um, and my pilot is with Amazon uh, Network. And so you are in Albuquerque, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's very cold in Albuquerque. That's the secret of the Southwest. It gets goddamn cold during the winter. And is, is that helpful for what you're shooting? I guess I guess it keeps us all on our toes. Uh, it's definitely, you know, I'm getting a chance to wear all, lots of coats that you don't get to wear in LA, and oh, it sounds sort of, nice. Keeps people awake, yeah. It's like the David, Let the old David Letterman sort of audience. We're all just shivering and chattering. And so, is this since the prince didn't get shot, and you is this the first pilot you've written that you're getting to to make? Uh, it is, yeah. It's so my first uh, produced pilot. That's pretty exciting. It's yeah. Thank you very much. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and we've got a cast that I'm just crazy about, and my director is really cool. And um, uh, yeah, it's really uh, it's really fun. Well, I'm excited to see it, Thanks, and <laughs> I'm really glad that you let us uh, read the script because I just. I loved it. I loved it on the page and then loved it, you know, even so much more hearing it read aloud. Uh, I just. And it, what a what a great audience and what a great. Oh, and I you know in, in case anybody is listening to me talk, uh, I, I, do, I do think like a fun detail about The Prince is that I wrote it always with Glenn Howerton in mind. He's like, you know, an old boss of mine and friend. And I, I think he's incredibly brilliant. And so him reading it and coming and sort of uh, doing the staged reading was like a real dream come true. And I think it was sort of like when you when you write something with an actor in mind and then that actor does it and does it like in a way that that just blows your expectations out of the water. It's one of those like really special things about writing. Yeah, he was sure. so good. He, he was so perfect in that role. And I guess it makes sense since you wrote it with him in mind that he was perfect for it. But yeah. He was great. I think that whole cast, you found us so many great actors for that yeah. read. Yeah, Brad Neely, my fiance, Mamie, um, and all sorts of other people. Yeah, really fun. Yeah, Scott MacArthur, who worked Scott on The Mixed was yeah. so good. Uh, Lizzie Pete, who, as Ann Alice, who more people should know. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah. She was so funny. Um, 
Yeah, no, it was great. Well, thank you for letting us do it. Best of luck. Yeah, man. Thank you. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mayhar. And that's our show for this month. Thanks, as always, to Ben Blacker, uh, my partner on this, uh, and to Noah Findling, who we couldn't do this without. Thanks to everyone at Dynasty Typewriter. Please, please subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app or Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. While you're there, give us five stars. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod, on Instagram and Facebook at Dead Pilots Society. All of the information about all of our live shows will be there. You won't miss any of those. Uh, until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thanks for listening. <laughs>